Sounds like we have one more spectacular day in this run of our October fall. Everybody's marveling at the colors of the trees and the beautiful temperatures. I hope we all get outside and enjoy some of it before it turns cold and Laura goes skiing. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Leila Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. We've got news to talk about. Let's get going. The First Energy public relations team keeps trying to distance the new leadership of the company from the corrupt bribery scheme the utility used to undermine our state government. And we question their continued secrecy in that area. But there is one area where First Energy is making good on its vow to be a better citizen. Layla, where is that? Well, they've stopped using dark money in Ohio after they agreed to disclose future contributions. A reporter, Jake Zuckerman, tells us that the company has pretty much cut off its contributions to Ohio-based nonprofit entities that spend outside money to support politicians. That's according to disclosures the company is required to make under the terms of a deferred prosecution agreement with the U.S. DOJ. However, the disclosures show that First Energy did still make about $130,000 in similar payments to political firms in 2021 in New Jersey and West Virginia. They also operate utilities there. So they're continuing to lobby Congress and contribute to politicians in other states, but they have mostly put an end to their political spending in Ohio. And they're down to only one lobbyist in Ohio. That's from 15 that they had in 2019. <laughs> so, and, you know, and part of the reason for this, Jake points out, is that politicians seem not to be willing to take checks from First Energy anymore in Ohio since the initial arrest and the bribery scandal candidates and party committees in Ohio have returned a combined $390,000 in contributions from the company's state and federal PACs. So that could have a lot to do with their decision making here. What a turnaround, though. I, 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 when you talk to Jake, he, he, he'll be covering the trial of Larry Householder if we ever get to it. And he views it as this is going to be the best illustration we've ever had about how government in Ohio works. And the way it worked was First Energy bought and paid for it. I mean, you talk to people that have been around a long time, the power they wielded in the state house was overwhelming. And now, not. I mean, if you yeah. listen to this spending to go from 15 <laughs> lobbyists to one, yeah. that's amazing. That is. That's quite neutering of their <laughs> their political power here. It's quite it's quite astounding. It'll be interesting to watch them try to spin during the trial. We expect all sorts of stuff to come out of this trial. There'll be revelations every day. We'll be covering it by the minute. And First Energy is in the middle of it. They're the, they were the lever that got everything moving. So they're going to be dragged through the mud and it'll be fun to watch them try and say, yeah, but that's not us anymore. That's not us anymore. Renewed <laughs> calls. to clean yes. in Ohio now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh -huh. They send lots of press releases about how they're cutting the trees down around the power lines and they're doing good things for the community. But that's going to be an interesting time. It's Today in Ohio. J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan were supposed to have just two debates in their battle for Rob Portman's Senate seat, but now we have a third on the horizon. Lisa, who's sponsoring this one, and will it be nonpartisan? 
This is very unusual. Uh, th they will be appearing together for a third time. Uh, well, not really together, but on November 1st in a televised town hall in Columbus that's hosted by the Fox News Network. So the candidates apparently will appear separately, and they'll each get a half an hour to take questions from the moderators, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum, and also from the audience. This is the first time that Fox News is presenting both candidates to their very conservative audience, so it ought to be interesting. This forum has been in the works since summer. They pitched the idea, Fox News pitched the idea to both Vance and Ryan campaigns, and then the talks escalated recently after going nowhere, and then they finalized this forum over the weekend. So it will be their third debate. Uh, the first one was October 4th by the Fox 8 affiliate here in Cleveland, WJW. That was televised statewide. And then there was one October 11th by WFMJ in Youngstown, but that was only local, although you can find it on YouTube. So yeah, this is interesting. I don't know about bipartisanship, but this is the first time that Fox News has ever hosted a Democratic candidate that I know of. Yeah, but is this going to be like Bob Costas calling a game where they're just all <laughs> in for one side? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I salute Ryan because he's walking into a, a rigged game. Fox News is not legitimate news they're they're yeah. completely the state media of the republican party pretending to be news i guess ryan is not afraid he's been very very straight in the way he's tried to appeal to voters he's the new york times had a story this week saying he's been running away from the d in his campaign materials he's just running as mr ohio uh, but this should be interesting i wonder why they're not facing off i wonder why yeah. it's one at a time. That's that, that's an interesting way of doing it. But I think also Ryan, too, may appeal to some Fox News voters with some of his centrist and maybe even, you know, right of center views. So, you know, maybe he thinks he can pick up a few votes there. It'll be hilarious if they ask Vance softball questions and then they turn and, you know, draw their fangs into Ryan, the true Bob Costas on the Yankees kind of treatment. Be well, fun to watch. Do you remember Hannity and Combs? Remember Sean Hannity used to have a Democratic guy, you know, to get the two of them together, but all he did was like just dump on this poor guy Holmes. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I would expect Ryan's going to get. Fox News is all in for Vance. They've been attacking any Ohio journalist that dares to examine Vance's record. It's been a very strange period with them. It's Today in Ohio. I had hoped to avoid assigning a story on this, but so many readers sent notes to ask about it that we figured we did need to explain. We talked a little bit about it last week, Laura, but why has the term Indian summer fallen into disfavor, replaced by the term second summer? Because while there are a lot of theories about why the term Indian summer came to be used, some of them are derogatory. And this one in particular is that this weather is a trick. It's deceitful. It's something that's given and then taken away, like the term Indian giver, which is outright, you know, derogatory. So that and and we nobody necessarily knew that. I think like it's a term we had used for a long time without thinking about where it came from. But when you brought it up, I think it really resonated with people to kind of like, it was a conversation starter. You know, you wrote about it in your subtext account from the editor. My mom asked me about it. And, you know, it's been this stretch of, I think this will be our fourth day of just lovely, want to spend all your time outside, sunshine. And so people have been talking about it. It's it's an odd one. I got a bunch of notes from people, you know, they, they had the idea that you've destroyed my memories of my childhood because 
we can't see Indian summer. And I'm thinking, well, it's not the name that you remember. It's going outside in this spectacular weather. And if it's offensive to some people, who cares if you change it? But this was a pretty strongly held sentiment on the people I heard from over the weekend. You know, there's the, the Fox News watchers who just call me woke and call me names. But then there were others who were just taken aback. It happened very quickly. I wasn't aware that AP had changed its style on this a couple of years ago. Um, and I think a lot of people were not aware of it either. And that's why it was such a talker. Yeah, absolutely. The the style guy that AP that we all use to kind of uh, be consistent in our writing uh, states in no uncertain terms, do not use terms such as Indian summer. But there are actually, a, if you don't like second summer, there are a whole lot of terms that this kind of weather has been called over the years. Uh, in Europe, it was an old wives summer. So okay, that's, yeah, that's maybe better. I'm going to get yeah. super offended by that. There's a St. Luke's summer, St. Martin's summer, um, the Halcyon days in Greek mythology. I had mm. no idea referred to a period of weather at all. Mm-hmm. So, but I, you know what? My, my kids were playing outside last night. They were like rolling around in the leaves and playing on tennis on the driveway. And I'm like, these are, these just like, everybody just treasures these because you know they will be gone soon. I, I sat outside on my porch uh, doing work yesterday and I just didn't want to come inside. Okay. Well, story explaining all this is on Cleveland.com, and it's proven to be a popular one. People want to talk about it. It's today in Ohio. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb is promising housing for all using American Rescue Plan cash to deliver, but a bunch of people stand in his way. Layla, who are they, and what is the obstacle they pose? Well, Stimulus Watch reporter Lucas DiPrilli has been covering Justin Bibb's Housing for All initiative, and the initiative includes $68 million, $35 million in incentives for public and private housing, $10 million in home repair funds, $5 million for a revolving loan pool to benefit small and minority contractors, and $18 million to address homelessness and provide affordable housing. But housing officials in Cleveland and, and city council members have told Lucas that Achieving the goals of this initiative and and lifting up neighborhoods through these kinds of investments could be difficult because of the insidious trend of what they call predatory investors. The idea here is that we see investors who are often from out of state, who buy up houses in Cleveland very cheaply. They don't pull any permits to improve the properties. And some of these houses are on the state's list of lead toxic sites. And then they rent them out. And they squeeze every last dollar out of the property before they eventually sell them off to perhaps another out-of-state buyer and turn some profit on it. And the properties just degrade without any maintenance. No one answers to housing code violations from the city. And these investors will often set up individual LLCs for each property that they own. And the person behind it can't be held accountable. And all the while... These houses are driving down the quality of the housing stock in Cleveland and making it more difficult for Clevelanders to become homeowners in their own neighborhoods. It forces many low and moderate income families into becoming renters because they can't compete in the housing market with these investors. In some submarket areas of the city, as much as 60% of home sales are by LLCs or bulk buyers. One report showed that on the city's east side, more than 45% of one to three family homes in 2020 were purchased by investors. And that was up from 15% in 2004. So the city is saying that this, this is the thing that really stands in the way of their housing for all goal. But there was talk 
a year or two ago about passing a law where anybody who was out of the area who owned property would have to have a person that was responsible, that was local, that that somebody would be the contact for the city. Somebody could be hauled into court to answer for the violations when you can't reach them. What became of that? Did they decide? I don't recall, but remember recently they've been trying to, um, you know, they've been discussing, the, there's the legislation to, um, to allow housing code violations to be sent to uh, property owners without uh, certified mail. You know, that they're trying to bypass that part of the system just to get these in the in the system and and get the system rolling on on these violations but but again even if the housing even if the owner pays fines there it doesn't it doesn't force them to fix the property you still have these houses that are just degrading and rotting in the neighborhoods and and uh just wreaking havoc on on the housing stock. You hear about this more and more. Realtors are upset about it because they have people that want to buy houses and they they can't get them because they're getting snapped up by the investors who, like you said, they they let them rot. They take all the money they can get out of them and then they they dump them. But this is a problem. So they don't. There's not a, really a solution here. They've just identified the problem. Yeah, I think um it, yeah, right now they're they're trying to figure out what is the way around this because they're they're trying to set people up for home ownership and and to build some equity and wealth and this is standing in their way. We but can't you, be the only city dealing with it. Go ahead, Lisa. No, but I do have to say, and I do read the uh, local real estate transfers that are published in the Sunday Plain Dealer, and you will see houses that go for sale in East Cleveland for $3,000. And then you'll mm -hmm. see homes that with contiguous addresses, $10,000 each that were all bought probably by the same person. So, and, and I do know from the article, they say that Cleveland and East Cleveland are particular targets of these predatory investors. So, I mean, you know, I don't know what these homes look like that are three and $10,000, but they are out there. And, and I'm sure investors can write a check for three homes. Boom, boom, boom. Mm hmm but other cities must be dealing with it too. I wonder if anybody's come up with a solution. You've got to be able to hold people accountable for not following the housing code. I mean, if you don't fix your house, they, they can haul the owner into court. And if they can't reach the owner, I guess what you're saying, Layla, is they just assess fines and eventually there's a lien on the house. Yeah. I mean, Lucas's story opens with one of su one such case where this this guy ended up with so many fines and delinquent taxes that his bill was higher than the selling price of the property. Like the value of the property was less than, than what he owed on it. And he was just some, you know, I think he lived in Hawaii or something like that. They just, he was like a ghost. Wow. Sad story. It's today in Ohio. In one of the many sinister schemes a lot of people use to steal or undermine the 2020 presidential election, two right-wing conspiracy theorists use robocalls to deliver falsehoods on the east side of Cleveland and in East Cleveland. Now they're facing the music for their crimes. Lisa, what's the latest with these two? Yeah, these two guys, neither of them Ohioans, 24-year-old Jacob Wohl of Irvine, California, and 56-year-old Jack Berkman of Arlington, Virginia, pleaded guilty in Cuyahoga Common Pleas Judge John Satoulis Court this week to telecommunication 
telecommunications fraud. That's a fifth degree felony. It draws up to a year in prison and they will probably pay the maximum $2,500 fine on this. The sentencing will be uh, the 29th and Judge Satula's court. They actually faced more counts of telecommunications fraud and bribery, but 14 counts were dismissed as part of this plea deal. So Wohl and Berkman formed this group called Project 1599, and they placed over 3,500 robocalls filled with misinformation to Eastside and East Cleveland voters. They warned them that their personal information could be used against them if they voted by mail, they could be arrested, or their information would be given to the CDC for mandatory vaccine and all kinds of falsehoods. Wool and Berkman are also charged with multiple felonies by the Michigan Attorney General, Dana Nessel, where they did the same thing there, but they're appealing that to the Michigan Supreme Court. It's amazing how many efforts were made to destroy the 2020 election, including and up to Donald Trump trying to, to overthrow the government on January 6th. I, I, what, what's the game? Why did they attack the voters on the east side of Cleveland and East Cleveland, they're just trying to keep them home. Yes. I mean, I, you know, because as we know, you know, the east side of Cleveland and East Cleveland is probably a majority black population, most likely to vote Democrat. So yeah, if you could scare them into staying away from the polls, you've lost some votes there. I don't remember anything like this before very recent history that there wasn't there. You didn't see efforts like this, to, to basically torment the voters and, and play these kinds of games. And it, you, it makes you wonder what's going on right now. We're heading in to the midterms two weeks from today. And you just wonder what we don't know that's going on to rig that election to try and get J.D. Vance elected. These are largely tactics used on the Republican side. I don't think we've seen many or any on the Democratic side, have we? Not that I've read. Yeah, that's the Republicans playing dirty. It's today in Ohio. Halloween is not just a day or a weekend anymore. It's interminable. We had tiny tigers walking up the street a week and a half ago for a merchant's <laughs> Halloween thing with weeks to go to the big day. Laura, what is going on? It's a hell of season. And it basically <laughs> starts when Labor Day is over and ends on October 34th, 31st. So... My kids have had a Halloween dance. We've had Spooky Saturday. There's a trunk or treat for swim team this weekend, a monster dash. And uh, Downtown River had a monster march for treats. And basically, if you want to go get candy, there are a zillion places that you can do it starting in the beginning of October. And, you know, Halloween at Cedar Point has been running all of September. It's open all weekend. Uh, these haunted houses we've talked about, well, I don't know that we've ever talked about them on the podcast, but they even offer seasons passes. That's how long this season could be for like $150. So I think the idea is that people have really embraced this holiday and, and just wanted to have as much fun with it as possible. That could mean multiple costumes for your kids and just multiple weekends dressing up and, and enjoying fall fun, I guess. Yeah, it gets back to what we talk about. People are so so turned off by all the ugly news they want to break. But two things I want to ask about. Yeah. Where did trunk or treat come from? 
And, okay. and for people that don't know what it is, explain it. So trunk or treat is the trunk of your car. And it's always, it's held in a parking lot. And people um, back their cars in and open their trunks. And a lot of times they can be really, they can have themes, right? And they'll decorate, especially if you have an SUV or a minivan, like they'll decorate the inside to look like a graveyard or it'll go with their costumes or, you know, it's kind of like a tailgate. Then they'll set up outside and sometimes they put like, you know, cornhole or games in front of their, their trunks. And the idea was that, you know, for, I feel like maybe the eighties was the zenith of this where like trick or treat was scary. Like kids were going to get bad things in their candy bags and you could have a, um, a, what is it? Like a blade and an apple, right? Like those were the horror stories of the suburbs in the eighties. And so they created these events to be safe. So you knew who was going to be there and it was like well lit and, you know, they're held by a church or school or something. So now we teach teach our kids to take candy out of strangers' trunks. (laughs) That's right. And get as much as you can because the season is lasting forever. It would have been Nirvana when I was a kid. Instead of having to go door to door for miles to get your (laughs) Mm -hmm. bag filled, you walk across a parking lot and you got candy galore. All right. The other thing I want to ask is Gretchen Crowen asked this in the newsroom. What's your, what's your strategy? Do you let your kids eat all the candy oh. right away so they get one <laughs> jolt? Or do you spread it out over a month where they're constantly putting a sugar month. into their they bodies? They cannot even eat that much candy in a month. Like, I'm telling you, by the time Halloween actually rolls around for trick-or-treat, my kids in the past, I don't know what's happening this year, they've been tired of getting more candy because there's been <laughs> so much candy. And they're like, yeah, I'm kind of over it, right? I mean, we're talking loads here. And then you always have the leftovers that you give out, right? Because I we never run out of candy. So um, we, you know, I think this summer we threw out some Halloween candy, which is really sad. But it's it's not good for them to have that much sugar. And so, I don't know. It's It seems like what we've done is created a mother load of sugar for children. So we're poisoning them. So it's fascinating how this has changed from one night where kids really had to work for it to just a bounty of sugar. Oh, yeah. There's I no have work. A theory. I do have a theory about why we have developed so many parties around Halloween for kids. It's because costumes have become so expensive. Oh. <laughs> And so, you know, if I'm going to pay $40 for a kid's costume, they're going to wear it until it's threadbare. Well, but I also think it's not just kids, right? Look around. My neighbors had inflatable Halloween decorations in their yard when the pool was still open. Okay. And I was like, okay, that is too early. But people really like decorating for their, for the the holiday. There's graveyards and and giant spider webs and this this 12 foot skeleton that Home Depot sells for $300 sold out for the third year in a row on the first wow. day it was available on July 15th. And there so are three is- in my neighborhood, three 12 foot <laughs> skeletons in my neighborhood. <laughs> I I wonder if this is like Sweetest Day where it's a Northeast Ohio no, thing or I, whether it's global. I suspect it's probably global. I think but- it is. I think it's this you know, Christmas has, you know, the connotations that there's gifts and there's a lot of work that goes on with it. And there's like religious part of it. And Halloween is just like pure fun. Like the only point of this holiday is to have a good time. It's today in Ohio. Sounds like Cleveland resolved the dust up it had over $17 million in American Rescue Plan money dedicated to lead abatement. Layla, we talked about it last week. What's the resolution? Yeah, they got this train back on the track, but, you know, last week's debate over it was was kind of intense. Uh, so by way of background here for, for listeners, back in the spring, the city had contributed $17 million to the Lead Safe Coalition for a variety of lead abatement programming. But that money didn't did not include funding for 
more thoroughly addressing the most severely lead contaminated homes, which was important to Mayor Justin Bibb, apparently, because last week he attempted to rectify that by pulling back five and a half million dollars from that 17 million that was already promised to the coalition and reallocating it to the most severely contaminated properties. And some members of council, well, namely Carrie McCormick, was totally upset by this change, especially because it seemed that there was some disagreement over whether the lead safe coalition had been brought into the loop on this, this amendment to the legislation. But this week, it appears they've reached a compromise because last night, council approved that amendment to the original funding, and it meets Justin Bibb halfway. It, it gives $3 million to cleanup of severely contaminated properties not covered by a U.S. Housing and Urban Development grant. It gives a million dollars for lead-related code enforcement, and then $13 million to the Lead Safe Cleveland Coalition for loans, grants, and, uh, and loans and grants to make homes uh, lead safe, training lead safe professionals and testing. Those were the original purposes for the money. That seemed to satisfy everybody at the committee table Monday afternoon. So, uh, so we're we're moving I ahead. I still think the better solution was what you brought up last week. They should have put more money into it and expanded money. it instead of cutting it apart. They right they have it. Be the hero who's like, hey, we're giving five more million dollars to the. You well, know, and the, we've talked about it. there is no bigger threat to the future of Cleveland. You're poisoning children's brains, making it less likely they will thrive or have higher education or all of the things we talk about. And if you spend this money and do it right, it has generational implications because th those kids will thrive and then their kids will thrive. So I just didn't understand why I didn't say, okay, we'll do the 17 million, we'll add 5 million for what you wanna do. Right. I personally think lead abatement is the probably the most important use of ARPA funds, and they, they, you almost can't spend too much of it on no, it. No, they should have done $100 million. It's today in Ohio. What is Magnet, and what is the significance of it getting a shiny new home to carry out its mission? And yes, Laura, I did use the word shiny. Lisa, this one's yours. Yeah, the Magnet stands for Mac Manufacturing Advocacy and Growth Network. It's been around since uh, 1984. And what they do is they help small and medium-sized businesses incorporate advanced technology into their business processes, things like 3D printing and robotics and so forth. And they also create career paths for these high-tech manufacturing jobs that are coming in the future. So they used to be in a CSU-owned building on West 25th but they're moving to 1800 East 63rd inside of the old uh, Margaret Ireland Elementary School in the Huff neighborhood. They had to completely renovate the school. It's a 1962 school, very mid-century, kind of bland looking. So they spent $18 million, million to jazz up this building. They basically had to knock out a bunch of load-bearing walls, replace them with these like steel columns and beams. So they're creating this huge shop floor because they have you know, machines there. They have cranes overhead. They have two-story, you know, high windows to let in all this natural light. It sounds wonderful. Um, so basically the CEO of Magnet, Ethan Karp, says he wants to dispel the myth that manufacturing is dying in Northeast Ohio and that jobs are disappearing. He says it's 20% of the employment in 24 
counties of Northeast Ohio, and it's half of our area's you know gross domestic product. Gross domestic product. And he says we really need to train the new generation of welders and maintenance techs and engineers and so forth. Because you know, and I just read over the weekend that electricians there's no electricians because they're all old and they're all retiring. So they really need to work to replace this aging and retiring workforce. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Everybody's trying to get workers, but but the manufacturing sector is huge, like you said, huge in the economy. And if they don't have the workers, it does harm the economy. Steve Litt was pretty excited about this and the story he wrote about it. It's on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. The Rock Hall is Cleveland's unique attraction, and we're coming up on the induction ceremony that garners the headlines each year. It's in Los Angeles, not Cleveland, Ooh. but the Rock Hall <laughs> stages exhibits for the new inductees. Laura, what do we know about this year's plan? They just released it a few days ago. Right. So all of the inductees are going to be honored in this new exhibit, and the artifacts include the Gibson uh, Blues Hawk guitar that Dolly Parton played in her 2008 Backwoods Barbie tour. There are handwritten lyrics from uh, Simon's You're So Vain and the outfit Eminem wore during the Super Bowl halftime show. So you'll get to see Pat Benatar's coat from the Invincible video, um, Ian Hill from Judas Priest's Fender Jazz Bass and Cotton's acoustic guitar from the 1950s. So a lot of really cool things. Obviously, um, we, you can't see the the um, ceremony in Cleveland, but you will be able to tour all these really cool things. Yeah. And I don't think they've announced that there's a simulcast at the Rock Hall. In past years, when it was out of town, or sometimes even when it's in town, they've let people who couldn't afford the pricey tickets or travel come to the Rock Hall and see it on a big screen. But I haven't seen that. There have been some years where they didn't do it because somebody rented the place out for a party. Um, So I wonder whether there'll be any place for Clevelanders to go to celebrate this. This this museum is unique in the world. No one else has one. It really does put Cleveland on the map. And so the more they do to emphasize that, the more attention it draws. Right. Uh, So the ceremony is November 5th. You can watch it on HBO starting on Saturday, November 19th. Um, so I guess it's two weeks later, but, um, the, the closest I've been is inside, you know, inside the rock hall, they have that theater where it, there's like a video of all of the, you know, I don't know if there's all, but a lot of induction ceremony moments and like the, the si- sound is really great. And like the, the seats rumble and you do feel like you're there. So that is very cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a big night. We'll be there. You can check out breaking news about it on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. That's it for Tuesday. Thank you, Lisa, Layla, and Laura. Thank you for everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back on Wednesday.